Hello, and welcome to the first ever episode of the Stories About Autism podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. My name's James, and I'll be your host each week as I talk with a special guest who has a connection to autism. I'm the dad of two amazing boys, Tommy and Jude, and both of them are autistic. For the last three years, I've been writing a blog about our lives called Stories About Autism. I've been lucky enough to talk with thousands of people all around the world as they share with me their experiences, and it's really taught me so much. Whilst most people know that autism actually exists, I still think there's a long way to go when it comes to real awareness, understanding and acceptance for the autism community. I hope that by sharing so many different stories, that this podcast can help change that a little bit. I've got some amazing guests lined up in the coming weeks. Are we speaking with autistic adults, parents and family members of children with autism, and professionals who work with autistic individuals, such as speech and language therapists, occupational therapists, and teachers too. If you enjoy this episode, please could you leave me a review on iTunes or wherever it is that you downloaded it from. Share it with your friends, or leave me a comment on Facebook or Instagram. I'd really love to know what you think, and it helps more people find the podcast, and maybe learn a little bit more about autism too. Right, on to our first episode. This week, I'm talking to Dean Devonport, who runs the really popular Facebook page, A Year in the Life of Autism. Dean has three children, and one of them, Charlie, is autistic. A few years ago, Dean also received an autism diagnosis. So we get to talk about what difference that's made for Dean, what could have been done for him when he was younger, and what can be done to help autistic kids in schools today. We also get to talk about how autism is so different for Dean and for his son. So, let's get to it. I'm sure you're going to find this really interesting as I loved getting to talk to Dean and find out more about him and his family. Here it is, episode number one. Okay, hello and welcome to another episode of the Stories About Autism podcast. This week I'm lucky enough to be joined by Dean who some of you may know already from the Facebook page A Year in the Life of Autism. It's a page I've been following for quite a while and become good friends with Dean, so I'm really happy to get the chance to have him talk to everybody today. So, Dean, hello. Yeah, th- thanks for having us. I'm, uh, I'm honoured to be here. Good stuff. So, most important things first, happy birthday mm-hmm. for yesterday. Uh, thank you. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a fab day. Yeah? Brilliant. What did you get up to? Uh, family time, how I like it. Yeah, excellent. Yeah. And if you don't mind excellent. me asking, how old were you yesterday? I was 27. 27. Wow. You're yeah. Making me feel old. <laughs> I feel old myself, mate. <laughs> so for the listeners who don't follow your page or, or know anything about it, do you want to just give everyone a brief introduction to sort of who you are, where you're from and, and, and what life's like for you? Yeah, sure. Okay. So I'm 27, as we just said. I'm married. I have three beautiful children, the oldest of which is Charlie. He's also autistic, with, uh, but he's, he's he has... Uh, much more complex, I'd say, struggles than what I do. He's uh, he's non-verbal. Yeah. He's, uh, uh, you know, sense school. So uh, they're, they're my absolute life. So you said it's three children, right? So it's Charlie. Okay. Uh, yeah, we have Charlie, who's the oldest. Um, Charlie's eight. And then my middle one is Poppy, that my, my daughter. She's five. And then my youngest, Freddie, he's one. And the, 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 the little two are... Neurotypical is. I'm not a massive fan of that word, but uh, yeah, I guess that would be the best best yeah. way to describe them. It's hard sometimes, isn't it? Like because uh, we talk about autism so much, it's like you have to distinguish the difference and use that word neurotypical where you maybe yeah, wouldn't I, all yeah. the time. Totally, yeah. I mean, if I was to, to, to be talking in everyday conversation, I would I would probably say not autistic. Maybe would be the. Hmm. But I don't think anyone's truly neurotypical. In a sense, I think we all have our little quirks and yeah, different, you know, different uh, routines and and stuff like that. That's not to say everyone's autistic. So I know that that annoys a lot of people when when they hear that. Yeah. On. <laughs> totally, yeah, I'm with that. But I think I don't I don't think everyone's I don't think anyone is uh, quote normal sort of thing. You know, I think we all have our different different quirks and whatever else. So. Yeah, definitely. So you mentioned that that Charlie's autistic and obviously you are as well. I, I don't know if, the, if that was clear when, when you first said hello, but can you tell us a little bit about that? When How old was you when, when you were diagnosed? Yeah, 
Yeah. Uh, okay, so it wasn't actually that long ago. I think it was around three years ago. I was about 23, 24. Hmm. If I go back just slightly further from yeah, me to when course. I was about 14, I've always had, like, as, as, as long as I can remember, I've always had, um, like, tics and obsessive compulsions. Anyway, to sort of cut a, a long, drawn-out story a bit shorter, um, I eventually got to see a psychiatrist and psychologist when I was about 14, 15, and was diagnosed with Tourette's syndrome and obsessive compulsive mm-hmm. disorder. But, uh, I mean, even though I had those diagnoses, I never, I don't, I can't explain it, something didn't, still didn't click in my brain. I was, any any challenges I had that was to be associated later down the road with uh, being autistic, I didn't know any different, if you like, so I would just sort of put them down to the Tourette's and to the OCD. And it was about maybe spring more, say, about three years ago, I think. I was getting sensory troubles. Like, it was getting to the point I couldn't cope sometimes. Just sounds and noises and whatever else. And yeah. Bright lights and things. Uh, like in the supermarket, you know, if you walk in, it's, like it's really piercing light. And it, it was, it started to get to the point where it was really bothering me. And it was actually Tom from Autistic Genius who's like, just go to the doctor see what they say, she might have some sort of sensory intolerance. I thought, well, it can't hurt. Gone through years of mental health teams, et cetera, et cetera. I got there and the the doctor was went through all of them. And he was sort of on his computer. I don't know if he was doing like a checklist or something. He's like, you literally tick every box for like Asperger's syndrome, Asperger's syndrome. I was like, okay. It's never really crossed my mind. I knew it was different, but never really crossed crossed my mind, sort of thing. Anyway, uh, within like six weeks of, of that, I was diagnosed as being on the spectrum. Wow. And at that point, obviously, you said uh, Tom from <laughs> Autistic Genius put sort of suggested mm-hmm. for you to go for that checkup. So I guess you were, were already thinking about it. But once you got the diagnosis and fought back over the years, did you. Mm-hmm. Did you sort of see things that stood out and thought, oh, that makes sense now? Yeah, totally. It was a very, uh, it was full of clarity, definitely. It was a very bizarre feeling because it's sort of twofold. One, you think, wow, I finally sort of know who I am a little bit and I can sort of move on and take whatever challenges that comes with. But at the same time, it's like, it's a very strange feeling yeah, that you're never quite going to think how most people do and sort mm. of catch on to what everyone, say everyone's not everyone, of course, but, you know, the majority of people. Yeah. And you're always, your mind's always going to work a, a bit different to most. And it's a very odd sort of feeling. Not, but I mean, I'm at the point now, I'm, I'm proud of that. I think I think diversity is, is a wonderful thing in, in, our, in our world. Definitely. And are you able to, to describe sort of how you think differently or how you, you believe that you think differently? Yeah. Sure, yeah. It's uh, it's it's a tough one. I've, I've definitely tried my best. It's tough because obviously my thinking differently is my normal thinking. Yeah, if that makes sense. Yeah. So it doesn't necessarily always stand out to me. There's a fair range of things like um, reading people. I'm not I'm not brilliant at reading people, catching on to things. I'm absolutely appalling in social situations. Is there's there's a whole you know like even if someone tells a joke and people are laughing and I mean I'm not daft I can I can understand most but sometimes it takes a minute to click and I'm thinking well what what what's going on and it I mean it's not so much now when you're younger it's sort of it can make you feel sort of outside of the circle for a little bit you know everyone's sort of on one wavelength and you're struggling to to sort of keep up if that makes sense at all yeah it does definitely so when you was younger and you said you find social situations difficult, how did that affect you? Yeah, well, I've always, I've always been a sort of one or two friend sort of person. I've never seen, I've never seen a point in in, in keeping loads of company and whatever else. And I was never one to. I mean, I would go out and mess around or whatever, but I was, I was, I was never interested in parties and and, and things like that or stuff. I guess you would associate with typically being younger, you know? Yeah. And not to say I didn't do it occasionally, but, um, or even quite often, but it never felt that comfortable to me. I suppose I was doing it to appease other people rather than 
you know, people say, oh, come out, blah, blah, blah. And there is a lot of peer pressure, I think, when you're younger to be part of a group and, you know, you want to fit in, et cetera, et cetera. So you just sort of go along with it. But it never never felt right to me. I've always felt more comfortable. I don't want to say in my own company because I don't want to discredit, and you know, friendships that I have had that, that mean the world to me. But it's never been a problem to me to 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 be on my own I'm, I'm more than happy to to do that so when you was at school uh and uh-huh. i'm i'm guessing in in a class of like 20 30 other kids how did you manage to cope and, and get through school time oh mate, i didn't i didn't actually finish school properly to be honest oh, really? i think okay. i left i was it was about halfway through year 10 so i suppose people outside of england that would be i'm not sure the grade but it's around 14 14 15 year old i think a lot of it probably manifested in my behavior because i didn't cope well in school yeah um i spent a lot of time in the school hall because it was it was like dark but because i didn't have that the school i went to was a teenager um an older teenager it was it was appalling and i didn't have that sort of understanding of myself so i suppose the teachers and whatever couldn't I couldn't expect them to understand it if I didn't understand it myself. Yeah. So I would make up excuses to be in like the hall, all of the hall, because it was very echoey, very dark, and um, I'd I'd help out setting the band equipment up for like various discos and, and random stuff like that, just to just to be out of that um, environment. It, I suppose it frustrates me a little bit because through no one's fault, I guess, but maybe even my own fault in a way. If I'd pushed. A bit more when I was younger um, and did some more sort of digging and, and got a diagnosis, then maybe I could have gone a lot further in school because I do, like, I love I love learning. Obviously, like any kid, I had my stuff I wasn't interested in at all, but, like, English and, and literature and stuff, like, I'm fascinated by it. I, I love the mechanics of it. So it's a bit, a bit disappointing to look back on and think I didn't get that far in something... I love, but I try to make up for it now with, uh, you know, write poems and stuff like that. So it's always been a fascination of mine. I know from from talking to you that um, poetry is a, a big love of yours. And do you manage to get spend much time doing that? Uh, no, it's it's. I would say um, I know a lot of people have it as a hobby. I would say it's quite vital to me. In uh, I honestly see it more as a coping mechanism in a way mm. because I've. Uh, I find it very difficult to express myself in a way that doesn't feel awkward or where I don't feel like I'm putting myself on display. And writing poetry, I guess it allows me to express myself and sort of be creative as well. And, and that I, I do see that more as a coping mechanism. So I do, even if it's like four lines that pop into my head, I have a little... Because most people do like a little memo thing on my phone, and I'll just tap them into there, and I don't forget them because even though they are there to make me cope, they do mean something to me as well. Yeah. You know, they're, they're in my brain, and it's obviously something that means something to me. Otherwise, I wouldn't be trying to express it in such a way. So. Do you have any other sort of coping mechanisms that maybe for for different situations or or when when things are more challenging? Yeah, I, I'd, see, I do a lot of things that I don't actually realise I'm doing. Like even stimming, I think that's obviously. A big one for a lot of people. Headphones are always a good thing. You know, like if, if I nip into town or whatever, it's so, so noisy. I was also taught off one of my, uh, um, she a behavioural therapist. You'll have to excuse me, I can't remember her exact title, but she worked <laughs> in the, men- the mental health team. I've seen a lot of people. Yeah, the- there's a lot of professionals you get to talk to, right? Yeah, so, but there's, um, I have trouble. Um, so if, if, if I was out, and there was, you know, lot, lots of people around, say it was in a bar or whatever, and someone's trying to talk to me, I would have trouble picking that conversation up because it just comes like a sound collage of everyone's voices. And so what I do, like, even if I'm in, if I'm out or in town or waiting, uh, like a shopping queue or whatever, this might sound really nosy, but I um, I try and practice by tuning into someone's uh, conversation. <laughs> so I'm sorry if I've uh, listened to your conversation. It's not done on purpose. I have no interest in what you're saying, but... It's just sort of like um, sort of practicing, if you like, for 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 when it's actually actually needed. Yeah, no, that that makes a lot of sense. I guess it's a it's a natural ability that, that lots of people already have, but you've managed to realise that. It's... I don't I don't go around telling everyone. Well, lots of people probably know now. That's <laughs> a, um, 
people think I listen to the conversation. I don't, honestly, I have no interest in what they say, but it's more to to practice for when it is. Uh, you're exactly right. You got it right, James. It's it's just learning skills that come natural to 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 most people. They don't feel as natural, so you have to learn them. You know, like reading body language and things like that. So since your your diagnosis, when you left the doctors that day and they gave you the diagnosis, what support have you had to to help you sort of understand more about autism in in that way? In like a personal way, is that is that how you? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I I know you, you already had some experience of autism anyway, um, mm-hmm. but for like what support was offered specifically for you? I'm just interested I, to know, sort of maybe for an adult who gets diagnosed. Not a lot, to be quite honest. I think you kind of just you yeah you are kind of just landed with it. I am so lucky that um, in terms of services, I have like a, a I was again I was under the mental health team, which is uh, to help with behaviour and things like that, help be more social, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I got signed like a, a worker to help me get more out and about yeah. and whatever else, um, which I've actually just set up a Tourette's group through through my work so I'm really pleased with that that's starting very soon as well so it, it's getting there but as for like uh, for, for like government services if you like it pretty much stops there I think I'm very lucky into because I have an amazing family an amazing wife my parents live just down the street my in-laws just down the street I'm so lucky in that respect because they're all supportive they're all understanding uh, but I do understand not everyone is fortunate enough to have that and I think that's a real shame because there's so many people who's who's got potential that just don't have the support structure in place, you know. Yeah, I mean, I know definitely from from my own experience for for the boys that that support structure is is so important, and I can imagine what you're saying there for to get it for yourself as well is is really important too. Just talking about your your boys for a moment, uh, you know, school age and things like things like that. I think there is a huge gap. Even going back to obviously when I was at school, things like that, there is a huge gap in support for, I think, particularly, um, I actually wrote about this on, on my page the other day, particularly uh, what people would class again as higher functioning autism. Because what, what tends to happen is they don't struggle enough in the eyes of, of, of the government to um, warrant being in a SEN school, but they struggle too much in the environment of a mainstream school. Yeah. Which I think effectively opens up a uh, I think I, I put it as like an education limbo so these kids are they're sort of lost I think because the 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 effectively being babysat in mainstream school because the t- teachers don't have um I don't want to say the know-how because I don't know every teacher but they certainly don't have the resources to be engaging with them and even stuff like sensory rooms and things like that they just don't have it the funding the resources to do that in a mainstream school but they don't. These children don't fit the criteria <clears throat> for an EHCP, which is people who aren't sure is a educational health care plan, which is need to access a SEN school. So I think they get stuck in the middle. I think that's 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 really really sad. Yeah, definitely. I know from talking to to lots of families uh, out there that I think that gap from especially kids who manage in mainstream at primary school, mm-hmm. and then they move into a secondary school and and the mainstream secondary school is maybe that a little bit too tough for them yeah totally i think that that would be if if i was to take it a bit more personal yeah i think that would definitely be my downfall uh primary school i was absolutely fine i think maybe because primary school i do think is a bit more one-on-one in the tent have it tends to be again it's not suited for everyone but it does tend to be more visual learning and more free flow yeah. structured and you have Whereas I think, yeah, I think once you get down to the classroom for what, six six hours a day and just throwing information at you constantly, I do think it gets overwhelming, and I think you, people don't give, excuse me, people don't give, um, you, you know, you have to give additional time to autistic people to absorb that information. I think it's just been fired up and too 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 quick and fast, and and then yeah. the the why they're not passing exams and things like that. It's ridiculous. Yeah, and I think all kids learn in different ways. And, you know, school is, is often set up to, to teach kids, everybody in, in one certain certain way. And, and for those who, who can't learn best in, in that, that method, they, they really struggle. Yeah, exactly. It's like, 
Um, just to sort of go back to what I said before, they think, okay, so we have 99% of the, the, the children who's currently in the education system, they're, you know, we'll put them in the mainstream, and the 1% who's diagnosed with the additional needs or whatever, we'll put them in a sensco. They don't allow for any middle ground of children mm. who may not be struggling enough for that sensco, but struggling too much in a mainstream. There needs to be some middle ground put in place, some spot, even if it's just gone into mainstream schools, and providing, I don't know, putting a classroom to the side which could be set up in the right environment and having it a bit more one-on-one, a bit more visual, a bit more sensory friendly, just even something like that. But there needs to be a middle ground. I absolutely believe that. And right now there isn't. So thinking back to when, when you was at secondary school as a teenager, what what supports do you think could have been put in place to, that would have helped you? Uh, well, I think it's just, it's even been mindful of of people's struggle for example if if you struggle with a sensory issues don't sit someone next to the fan do you know what i mean think just even little things like that i know it sounds like small and insignificant but that could affect their their whole day if they've got fan buzzing in their ear and that to someone who doesn't have any sensory issue that wouldn't necessarily play a part in them in their day at all but Someone who, who who does have these struggles, that was in the, and that would just ruin the day. That would that would stop them learning. And it's just even being mindful of little things like that. I think teaching teachers more about autism would maybe be a a, a good way to go. I'm not saying a lot of them don't know, because obviously they do. But even the little intricacies that, I mean, a lot of people know the sort of what makes up autism with the different behaviours and characteristics, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, but the they're not. They're never taught usually about the little intricacies that go with it and the little quirks, if you like, which can make the difference between like a brilliant day and like complete meltdown. So I think even teaching teachers these little quirks, intricacies that, you know, really can affect people, I think that would have a beneficial impact on on the school system. Definitely. And I I know it's it's sort of one of the reasons that that you have a page and and that I, you know, do some of the stuff that I do as well is to I've learned over the years how different autism can be for everybody mm-hmm. uh, that there is no one definition of, of what autism means to somebody and you know try and share different people's stories and that, that's why we're, we're doing things like this podcast today to try and you know show everyone the sort of variety of, of stories that, that come out from from people who are autistic so yeah it, it would be a great idea for for teachers and everyone involved in in education to, to have a, a much deeper knowledge i think absolutely yeah i mean we're, we're not talking like um if you go over like this the span of even a few years we're talking thousands and thousands and thousands of, of children particularly i think if you if you start at children even going all the way like to the youngest classes um and i think that would also be a way forward is to teach children about autism as well as the teachers. Mm. I think if you teach them young, children are very uh, like sponges when they're little. I think as they get older, they tend to pick and choose what knowledge they want. But I think when they're little, they're just sort of taking what they're told. And I think a big help would be, as well as the teachers, teaching teaching the children, going into the schools, having advocates go in, um, just explain the behaviours and how, you know, just involve autistic people. You know, there's a... A complete myth that autistic people. I'm going to sound like I'm sort of contradicting myself here from from what I said earlier, but there's a myth that autistic people don't um, want friendships and friends, which is a, a it's a complete myth. Yeah, totally. What autistic people struggle with is making them friendships, and maintaining them. Yeah. So if we teach children when they're younger to involve autistic people and know that the, the friendship initially might take a little more a little more work on 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 the, again, quotes, neurotypical child's side, just for initial, you know, just for initially, uh, and teach children little things and like that. I think we'll do that, and as they grow older, they'll grow up to be accepting. They'll grow up in, well, that's the dream anyway, if you like, but they'll grow up knowing what it is, and and, and, if, and then if they do see someone in the street who's maybe struggling or there's a child when they're older who's having a meltdown in the supermarket, their first thought won't be, oh, look at that spoiled brat, you know, because that's what is most people's thoughts, whether they yeah. used to 
say that or not. It is. It's totally their first thought. But if they're taught from a young age and they understand that, then perhaps that won't be the first thought and they'll see a child who's actually really struggling rather than someone who they think's just been like a sport brat. I think that's a big problem as well, you know. Totally. And if, if I'm honest, 10 years ago, I probably would have thought the same. Yeah, totally. That would have been the automatic reaction in, in my head is, you know, oh, that, that kid seems like a nightmare. Yeah, James, and I think that's why um, what we try to do with our pages is, is, is so important because if we get the word out there to, I mean, we can't expect people to know about something if they're not aware of it. We can't expect people to accept something if they're not aware about it. I think that's why, um, I mean, there's our pages, obviously, there's there's lots, many like ours out there that do try and, you know, even if even if it's a friend of a friend of a friend whose newsfeed it pops up in, you know, that's someone else who's seen it might think, oh, you know, when they're at the supermarket, oh, actually, that child might be struggling. That's why these, what we're doing, I think, I think that's why I take with a certain pride because I do think, I mean, it's hard to do individually, but together, I think it's the size of Facebook and obviously the global amount of people on it. But I think together we, yeah, I think we're making an impact, hopefully, anyway. Yeah, I agree. I, I think social media obviously uh, has its downsides at times, but I think as as far as autism, at least, that, you know, that there's so, so much more awareness and greater understanding for the people who actually take part and read it yeah. those people I, I think it does change their opinions it really does i know that's not everybody but that definite you know, chunk of society never, it's it's working with you're, you're never going to get everyone are you that mm. yeah i totally get what you say you, there's some people are stubborn to it they don't want to be told this something i think some people don't understand autism i don't think they ever will understand it the two sort of set in the ways but if we can even get 80 80 percent of the of the population known about autism and then those who that don't understand it and maybe will be judgmental just become like a one in a million sort of thing you know so which i think most people can live with it's it's yeah as long as we get the majority then i'll take that as a win you know <laughs> yeah all right 100 percent agree so just coming back to, to what you said about friendships uh, i know you mentioned you always found it easier to have you know a, a handful of, of people who are closer to you what do you think it was that attracted you to those people was there anything in the way they were towards you that's a that's a very in- interesting question i've never really thought about it i've always found i don't even suppose i can explain it it just feels automatic i if i just i can just tell if i'm going uh, if i if i'm going to get on with someone if yeah. If it's going to be someone I want to spend time with, I, t- I honestly couldn't explain it. There's no particular qualities, if you like. Obviously, I'd, I wouldn't want them. I'm a very accepting person, so if someone, you know, friends with someone who's a bigot, for example, you know, that's that's yeah. not me. But there would have to be, uh, you know, an accepting person. And but apart from that, I don't look for any particular qualities. I don't think. No, it's just I just if I know a sort of thing, I'm going to click with someone. The reason I ask is, I mean, obviously, people make friends generally because. You have a shared interest or you know you have something in common and that's that's sort of how you seem to get on and i've just noticed with with jude and tommy how they're starting to interact a little bit more with with kids their age and it, it really seems to be the kids who are noticeably accepting and patient and tolerant and sort of give them the time to be who they are uh, and i think adults as well you know the adults who are completely relaxed and at ease around them yeah, that's actually, I suppose, yeah, I, I think you're bang on in a way, because now that you've mentioned that, popping into my head, the shared interest thing, I, I suppose, yeah, would be, not necessarily when I was younger, but I guess it's harder um, as you get older to make friends, I think, personally, anyway, mm. you should become more aware of everything and whatever else, but as sort of the majority of my friends um, now, the, you know, the people I associate with, yeah, would probably, bar like a couple, be involved in the autism world in some way which is quite interesting yeah but i guess that's i suppose that would be the same for anyone would it if you know you tend to gravitate to people who it's just easier i think if i'm talking to someone who's autistic or like yourself got autistic children i don't think there's that you don't have to sit and explain yourself over and over and you don't feel like you have to justify anything you're doing or your behaviors so i think yeah I think that would be fair to say. That definitely makes sense to me. As I said, I've, I've been sort of noticing it recently. And, and like you said, yeah, even as, as a parent, you know, a lot of the friends that I've made in the last few years are autistic adults or 
parents of autistic children because you have that something in common and, and that feeling like you don't have to explain everything all the time. I think it, yeah, I think it makes a, a massive, I think it makes a massive difference because you don't, you know, you're not backtracking constantly and like you say, you're not trying to justify yourself constantly, which gives you a sense of ease, I guess. And yeah, it's just interesting. Just since you said that, yeah, it made me think, like, yeah, majority <laughs> of my friends, uh, yeah, they are autistic or the page owners, you know, like yourself or they have autistic children. Yeah. yeah. So that's quite interesting. Cool. So moving on to your lovely family that you mentioned earlier, obviously you, you said that, that Charlie's autistic. How old was Charlie when he was diagnosed? He officially got diagnosed. It was it was within a week or so of starting his um, his school, which is a sense. No, sorry, he got his EHCP awarded. But it was very, very close. But he was diagnosed when he was four. When he was about four, okay. So was that before or after you? Uh, that was before, actually. Before you? Yeah. And you mentioned there's there's some sort of real differences in, in what autism means for Charlie. What Could you describe some of that? Yeah, of course, yeah. Um, well, I think the big one would be communication. Charlie is, um, he was non-verbally, so graduated, if you like, to pre-verbal, which is fantastic, which means um, for people aren't sure, he's shown intent to speak, you know, try and form words, but he has no active speech, if you like, currently. So I think that's a big one. I think um, communication is huge. Charlie requires, um, I would say, pretty much 24-7. You have to you have to keep an eye on him. He requires yeah. a lot of help with his, his day-to-day tasks, for example, eating and bathing, etc. I mean, he is making progress in all those, but little tiny steps, which is absolutely fine by me. But, yeah, he does currently require – I mean, you have to keep an eye on him. He has absolutely no danger awareness whatsoever. We're still on with the toilet training, so that's sort of like an ongoing thing currently. So yeah, he's, he's, I'd say he's, I'd say Charlie struggles a lot more complex than than perhaps mine would be, just because he has yeah he requires sort of like twenty four hours. You do you do really need to. One thing he doesn't struggle with, which I see a lot on pages, autism pages especially, is sleep. I know it's a lot of children who's autistic. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Lucky you. <laughs> <laughs> what does that feel like? He sleeps amazingly well. I mean, he gets yeah. up early, early. And Amy, bless her heart, gets up with him every morning. But he's never ever had a problem with sleeping, and I know that's that seems to be a big issue for lots of people. But no, he's sleep through anything, Charlie. I'll take the risk in saying this out loud, but it's the same, you know, with with Jude and Tommy. Jude had years and years of terrible sleep, and Tommy slept every night, same time, all the way through, and just would never wake up it's just you know c- complete opposite you think you've jinxed it now <laughs> i hope not <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean, for, as far as um i think it's if if i could just just on about there about charlie's um what it requires or whatever i remember when well, it was when me and amy got married actually we were in the church or whatever it was like halfway through the service and charlie was getting upset uh and one of our friends had Took him out of the church, just sort of removed because it was very noisy for him anyway. He was really struggling. So, and took him, I think, to the park. I can't exactly remember. Uh, and I remember the same to afterwards. He come up and we're like, oh, thank you. That was, you know, so nice. And Charlie was happy as anything. He'd been, you know, calmed down or whatever. Uh, and then said to us, he's such a lovely lad, but I don't know how you do it. I mean, they, ne- they meant nothing by it, if you understand. Yeah. But I don't know how you do it every day because, you know, I was really struggling for that 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 length of time. What? That I did. I think it was about an hour or so, maybe. And that resonated with me because I thought, well, it it never. People say that to us. I don't know how you manage, but it never. I don't see Charlie as have been any more. I don't want to say difficult. I'm very careful with the language I use here. Yeah, that's fine. I don't see Charlie's been. Well, I mean, is to look after Charlie to me seems no harder than to look after the other two in some respects. It's I find it actually easier so when people say that it it rings home how i think after a while how natural sort of it all gets to you after a while yeah you know the the day-to-day routine etc etc i think it really resonates how how secondary things become and how you do get into a flow of things i just found it yeah it still it still rings in my head to this day people still say it i don't know i don't know how you it's like well it doesn't I don't feel like it's he's hard work. Like he's my son. Of course, I'm going to do look do everything to look after him. You know. Yeah, I I mean, for me, I've only ever been a dad to to autistic children. So I've never, as much as I had visions of what being a dad would entail, I've never 
parented the you know a, a non-autistic child so it is normal day to day and I, I think f- when people say that it's because they don't have the experience of of knowing your child and of spending a lot of time with them and understanding why they do things or or how to help them when they're having a, a tough time so so yeah you're right I, I don't think it's it's ever a they're not saying it in a bad way they, they just don't necessarily understand how to do it all exactly, day long yeah that's why i start with the you know the meant nothing by it which, yeah because i know yeah. the, the really lovely person but the, the meant nothing, but you're exactly right they, they don't have that experience and so they think well is this what it's like every day and so and you put you know poppy can throw a hell of a, a tantrum do you know what i mean freddie can do that yeah i know daddy's usually more meltdown based and there is a big difference on him make that very clear but you're still having to deal with it you know if you go on the like the sleep thing charlie sleeps fine but poppy will be pissed most of the night and freddie will be up all do you know what i mean there are i think there's there's lots more factors to to put into play and i think i think the other my youngest two can be when they want to be just as difficult in terms of <laughs> their behavior than, than than charlie can it's just every child's different isn't it yeah. that's, that's exactly it so you mentioned Charlie has difficulty communicating and is is not verbal as yet. How do you communicate with him at the moment? Like what you know, obviously there's lots of different methods out there. Uh, how do you and Amy communicate with him? Sure. Well, we're very excited because he's just started to use his uh, PEX cards at home. Oh, which amazing! Is brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Well, he he refused for for ages, like ages. Um, and he would just use objects for reference. For example, he would bring us the control if he wanted the tele change, crisp packet for him or crisp, etc. So in order to get him into the habit of using PEX at home, we've sort of done it in between. So technically it's still PEX, it's the same system as picture exchange cards. But the photographs of the actual objects rather than the sort of symbols that yeah. the tend to use in schools and stuff. So it's sort of to bridge that gap. And now we he's just started using them at home and he he's gone fantastic. Which I think see for Charlie a lot of his frustration comes from not being able to communicate his needs i honestly believe that yeah so if he's wanting more milk for example and he couldn't find his cup obviously before he started using his pecs at home that would frustrate him because he can't say i want milk so you know that ensue a meltdown coming on uh but now he knows he can just wander over and get his card and i i, I always replace them in the in, in the place he took them from so he knows where they're at it's consistent and it just yeah i think I think it cuts frustration down a lot. So what I'm gradually doing is introducing more, more cards, you know, more photographs, and we'll eventually sort of transition into the symbols that he's using at, at school. So fingers crossed that goes well. Yeah, it's fantastic. It sounds like it's going well. I'm yeah, I'm really proud of him. You know, he's he's we got an award last week for for using his pecs and the perseverance he's showing. So as much as I, I want him to obviously tries best wherever he is but I'm glad he's giving it his all at school even if he is a bit more chilled at home you know I want him to have a place where he's chill anyway I don't push mm. him too hard he needs to relax he's still a child at the end of the day but yeah as he's giving it his all at school and that's that's we've seen we've seen the progress he's making some amazing steps so yeah fantastic how does Charlie get on with his siblings and the family as a whole Charlie particularly um Poppy I think that's because Poppy understands more, and um, she's obviously a lot older. So Charlie's been with her a lot, lot longer than than Freddie. Obviously, only been one, but he adores Poppy. I mean, absolutely adores her. I think, I think he sees Poppy in a lot of ways. Like, not that we ever put anything on Poppy. I wouldn't expect her to do. I mean, Charlie's our son. We look after him, but she has a very maternal instinct towards him anyway. Yeah, you know, and she can read him quite, quite well. Like, you know, Charlie will just. I don't know, he'll, he'll do a scream or whatever. Poppy will know exactly what, what he wants. You know, it's, it's it's very strange. They're almost in tune with one another. And he'd, I mean, I remember there was some, some older children in the park. We were in the park. I think this was last year, I think. Just playing. And these older kids had come over to Poppy. They weren't being malicious about that. I think they just wanted her to play. Not too much older than her, but older still and a bit bigger than her. And Charlie walked up to Poppy, stood in front of her and started puffing out his chest. <laughs> So, uh, seriously, because he thought that uh, she was in danger and he was having none of it. Aww. So he, went, he stood in front of them, puffed up his chest. <laughs> These kids just wanted to play for things, but 
Yeah, they uh, they walked away. Um, yeah, I mean Charlie, he loves Freddie to bits as well, of course. But I think he's got such a strong bond currently. I think as Freddie grows older, yeah, and he can interact a bit more, I think that will strengthen their bond even more. But uh, Poppy and Charlie, especially, the he absolutely, absolutely adores her. Poppy's understanding of autism is unreal. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Have you explained what autism is to Poppy or? Has she just picked up on different behaviours from Charlie? But Poppy, like, we've never, ever hid autism from any of the kids. We even tell Charlie, I know some parents, like, how do I tell my child they're autistic? But I just say, tell them from a young age, and then it's it's nothing different for them. That's my personal philosophy yeah. to each book. So it's never been, like, a hidden fact. But, I mean, when Poppy was two, she was trying to learn Makaton out of a book so she could talk to him. That's, again, that's, I think I, it popped up on my uh, you know, memories on Facebook, actually. It was only a couple of weeks ago. But she's trying to learn sign language so she can talk to Charlie, two-year-old. You know, it's it's, uh, it's, she, it's just incredible. Her understanding is is immense. And it's never, never, like, it's never been pushed upon a sort of thing. We're never like, you need to learn this, you need to learn that, blah, 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 blah. blah. But it's something she chooses to do because it's her brother and, and she loves him and she likes to mother him, so... Don't you know what the crack is? She just totally, yeah. She just says, uh, you know, his 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 brain works a bit differently, and she's she's happy with that sort of explanation. Yeah, that's that's how Poppy would explain it to herself, and that's how she like understands it. And, and I don't think she's far wrong. I think yeah, it's pretty good way of putting it. You know, it's not better or worse, just different. You know, yeah, it sounds like that's exactly what you'd hope for from a from a younger sibling to to have that attitude and and to show him so much love i couldn't ask for for better i was walking i was like i used the opportunity of, of taking poppy to school to get some conversation out of her because she's five going on 13 you know <laughs> like spend the time in her room watching youtube whatever so i take advantage of the of the you know the time walk so i get some conversation out quite often we'll talk about Charlie because I think it's important to um, you know find a balance and I want to make sure she's happy with everything yeah. because we do have to dedicate a lot of time to Charlie etc and so I'll always say does anything bother you that Charlie's doing at the minute you know so I'll talk to Charlie about it and hopefully resolve it because he doesn't always understand that something he's doing perhaps is upsetting her or etc so I always say that quite often and it was only the other day, and she said, "I have one thing that bothers me about Charlie." I said, "Oh, okay, just tell me, and we'll, we'll, you know, we'll try and sort that out." It would upset me if he wasn't autistic anymore. And that just, <laughs> it's just little things like that, and I think, okay, I think like she's just a perfect example of 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 how I would love every kid to be in terms yeah. of acting autism and seeing the world. She's just beautiful. I'm so so proud of her. We need to get Poppy to teach the other kids. That's what we need. Yeah, totally. I shall tell them. She's not afraid to tell them. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> when was it that you decided to start the Facebook page, A Year in the Life of Autism? When? How did that all come about? Okay, yeah, sure. Uh, if we go back, ooh, that was about three years ago as well, I think. It actually started, um, we, me and Amy saw a lot of um, pages about autism on Facebook, and they were always so negative like my child can't do this my child can't do that etc etc and we're like this is, you know if you're first time you know if you're having your child diagnosed and you're new to this whole world and you go and read that it's just gonna like it's just gonna give the wrong impression because obviously the reality is there are struggles and stuff like that, but there's also so much amazing stuff you know yeah and we wanted to show that so what we did was we actually started blogging for we did a year back to back Hence the name of the page. Not many people know that now because like our audience has completely turned off. I think since then, but there was there was no really um, vlogging on on autism on Facebook at the time. Well, not that we were aware of anyway. So we did an entire year every single day back to back about you know amazing stuff that Charlie's done and, and, and positive stories and we'd read his book out and his achievements and we wanted to show that um, yes autism comes with struggles but you know we. There's so much amazing things in there as well. Yeah, yeah. So that's originally how it started, and we 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 completed the year. Uh, we got, you know, we managed to get into newspapers, and uh, we got on radio, and we did stuff like that. We were on uh, an American TV channel, like the Autism Channel, I think it's called. We did an interview for them and stuff. Oh, wow. Trying to 
yeah, it was pretty pretty awesome. Uh, we got in touch with this uh, guy called uh, John Stoker, who works uh, for our local paper. But we had a lot of contacts, and through them we managed to meet other people, and and it sort of snowballed. When we got to the end of the year, we're like, what do we, you know, what do we do now? Do we just call it a day and shut the page down? Because there was no way we could do another year vlog. It, it drained us completely. Drained us. We talk about video recording, doing a lot editing and uploading the very same day you know it was done the same day. it was a killer quite a commitment with everything else yeah but, you know some of them were like 25 minutes long and trying to edit that in one day it was just killer uh so the natural thing to do uh, and it felt the natural thing to do was to sort of keep the page you know keep the name because why not it's autism related and it's just, you know it was established at that point um and sort of switch focus from like blogging and vlogging onto like education and things like that i mean we still do the blog posts and blog occasionally but it was it, it it swapped its focus more to supporting people rather than telling our story and it gradually just grew and grew and grew and i mean we have the best followers in the world there's some amazing people on there and you, you see the the same names pop up every day like i don't know like you must know the feeling with your with your audience you know it's like when you've got thousands of people like sat there supporting you and, and messaging you saying thanks for what you do really helping and stuff it's it's so nice and humbling and I, I love it like I love the feeling it's it's great yeah that's exactly it it is humbling it's it's a really a strange experience it's not kind of what I imagined would happen when I started to telling these stories you know I'm, I'm sure like you you thought if if uh, there's there's 10 people who read it then you know great and if it helps one of them you know on a on a tough day or it helps someone get the right support then you know it's your, your job's done but but yeah as, as you said suddenly you have this community and you've got the same people all the time messaging you and and yeah it's a, it's a really it's a wonderful feeling it is yeah and just to have the just knowing that there's so many people collectively out there who are on the same page as you yeah like literally for <laughs> figuratively and <laughs> Um, yeah, just knowing there's, you know, so without, you know, no one person is alone. We are like a small army in a, in, in a way in terms of we're all heading in the same direction, we're all marching together, want the same things. And and what I love especially, I think, about the pages, and I think you only tend to get this with particularly social media. I think it's a lot harder to do. Like, I like, even though everyone's got the picture and names, there's sort of an, an I'm, I can never say this word, yeah, and then, and then, and then yeah. you can't see who's who, sort of thing. Yeah. What I mean is, so, so there's there's no divides. There's like it's it's all multicultural, and 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 from there's people from all over the world and religions, and and, right, and we're all lying together as one for the same, united for the same cause. Which I think is, I think it, it's it's a lot easier to get that on social media. I think doing that in the real world is a lot harder, but social media, it's it feels. I don't know. I think it's because you can't really see who's who and what they believe and stuff like that. Just everyone working together. And it's nice. It's a real nice feeling. I know you, you have a support group as well that's that's part of your page. Yeah, we have we have the artists, Autistic Gamers uh, group. We have two. Uh, the Autistic Gamers, which is, um, I wanted to a, a play. As, again, reading, I read a lot of autism pages. I follow lots. You know, obviously I have a big interest in it. You know, there's so many uh, autistic kids who are trying to play online and they're being bullied. And they were so scared to give the details out to friends, whatever. So I wanted to try and sort of create um, a place where they could do that and know that everyone's on the same page and people are adding who, obviously, for children, the parents would have to do it for them. And that's completely on them. That's for their consent to do. But, you know, it's very low. No, no, I don't, we don't tolerate trolls like as soon as one bad foot you kicked out because i want it to remain people to be able to post in there for their kids and because children are going to play online whether you whether you want them to or not so i think the important thing is to make sure they're safe and cut down the bullying and trolling to its lowest possible i mean ideally get rid of it completely but you're always going to get the odd person so try and reduce it as much as you can and then the second group is um straightforward autism support group so you know, people can post now their questions, comments, because sometimes um, people are a bit nervous to have the stuff on the page. I mean, we do an anonymous post, but if they want to follow it in like a thread or whatever, reply to people, they want, it's a bit more 
it's a bit more secure. It's not as out there. So people sometimes feel a bit more comfortable in that environment rather than it being sort of publicly shared. So we, we do that as well. Those groups can be an amazing help, can't they? As you said, I think because you have the privacy and that not all of your friends are going to see what you write, that people really open up and get the answers that they need. Well, exactly. I mean, I think, I mean, anyone can go onto our page and, and put a like on it and, and follow and comment. Um, obviously, if there was become a problem, I'd just block them. But until they did something, I wouldn't necessarily know that they were a troll or a bully or anything like yeah. that. Whereas a group can be filtered a lot, a lot easier. You know, you can have access questions. And I think more so with groups as well, people tend to self admin it even though you don't necessarily appoint them so they will tag you in it if someone's stepping out of line whereas pages especially when you get like i mean i imagine you're getting to this point now with when you get like into the 20 and 30 thousand people you get that many notifications things can fall through the cracks quite easily yeah whereas groups the 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 don't you don't tend to get as many notifications because they're not generally as as active as as what you know page would be because they don't tend to have as many and so it's much easier, I think, on on that side of things to admin it and make sure everyone's happy and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, so. Just before I ask you a final question, Dean, uh, mm-hmm. I just want to say thank you for for joining us today, sharing yeah. with us your story and and the story of of your family and and for running your page and doing such a great job that you do with with all the groups. Appreciate that. Thank you. I um, absolutely love it. And it's it's you know any chance I get to talk about is always always happy with me so yeah thanks for having us james okay oh you're welcome it's been it's been really informative i'm sure everyone's going to love it so just wanted to ask you final question what's one thing that you want the listeners and the rest of the world to know about autism i think okay oh it's uh it's quite a um i've thought about this question many a time and it's such a difficult one because it's quite defining isn't it if you would say like one thing so just I think, okay, so if, if I was to, to, to one thing that I'd want everyone to know about autism, that being different isn't, isn't, isn't wrong. It's not wrong. It, yeah, I think that would be the best way I could sum it up without going off on another tangent. But yeah, being different isn't, isn't wrong. You should be proud of who you are. You know? Being different isn't wrong. You should be proud of who you are. What a powerful message to end on. Thanks, Dean, for sharing your story with us today. And thank you all for listening. If you want to follow Dean, please check out his Facebook page, A Year in the Life of Autism, and you'll be able to access the support groups he was talking about there too. So that's it. The first episode's done. I really hope you enjoyed it and maybe learnt something new today. If you've got a moment, please could you drop us a review on iTunes or wherever you downloaded it from. Also make sure to hit the subscribe button So I'm going to be bringing you a new story each and every week and that way you'll make sure you don't miss a single episode. Thanks for listening, and I'll speak to you all soon.